Sometimes we only sing about the resurrection or we only sing about special holidays when those holy days or holidays come around. But that's something we should sing about all the time, the resurrection. You know, Christ Jesus lives today. And I, absolutely, I just kind of loves that, love that hymn. It's a happy hymn. And isn't it good to sing about happiness right now? Isn't it good to remember that Christ Jesus does live today? So I'm just glad that that was selected to sing today just a few months before Resurrection Sunday. But we should celebrate the resurrection year-round. You know, Christ Jesus lives within us year-round. We are Holy Spirit-filled year-round as Christians. You know, John 15, you know, he lives within us. He is the vine, we are the branches. You know, so we're going to be going to Romans chapter 2. We're mainly going to focus on verse 12 today, on verse 12. But I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 and just allow me to set up the passage here. As we get into this, I want to talk for a moment about justice. Just as we begin this, I want to talk for a moment about justice. The, the traditional view of justice is the picture of the blindfolded statue with the scales in hand trying to weigh out equity without being influenced by the appearance of anyone. Have, have any of you seen that? You know, the picture of the blindfolded statue that is scales in the hand. He's trying to weigh out equity without being influenced, by, being influenced by the appearance of anyone. Justice is supposed to be totally objective. It's not supposed to be influenced by, you know, culture or class or money or anything else. And this idea that justice is blind simply means that justice does not want to take into account anyone's looks or anyone's position in life or anything other than the truth itself. Years ago in ancient Greece and Rome, justice was pictured not only with eyes that were blindfolded, but with no hands. So that justice could not see and justice could not receive. It could not choose on the basis of appearance, and it could take no bribes. No bribes. It could not be bought. So not only is justice blind, but the picture has no hands. It could take no bribes. It could not be bought. There's an ancient story that I think is actually true of a man who, in spite of all of the passions of a father, had to pass a death sentence on to his own two sons. For he was the leader of his country, and his sons had conspired to overthrow the government. Imagine that. We may not be able to think much of that today, but in ancient cultures, it was unfortunately too common, where even family could conspire against family to overthrow the government. And that is what happened right here. This guy, he's the leader, Brutus the Elder, he's the leader of a country, and his sons had conspired to overthrow the government. According to the historian, the youth stood before the man, the youth, the sons, stood before the man. And the man was named Brutus the Elder. And they pleaded, the kids, the, the, the young adults, they pleaded and they wept and they hoped their tears, they hoped their tears would be the most powerful defense with a loving father. The men who sat behind the ruler whispered, what will he do? What will he do? These are his children. And the man, Brutus the Elder, said, to you the executioners, I deliver my sons. And the historian wrote, in this sentence, he persisted, inexorable, notwithstanding the weeping intercession of the multitude and the cries of the young men calling upon their father by the most endearing names. The executioner seized them, stripped them naked, bound their hands behind them, beat them with rods, and then struck off their heads. The inexorable Brutus, 
looking on the bloody spectacle with unaltered countenance. Thus, the father was lost in the judge. The father was lost in the judge. He was being totally and completely objective. The just judge doesn't see. He cannot receive bribes. And this may be a good picture of how it will someday be with God who offers himself as a loving father, but someday the father will be lost in the judge. God is the just judge, and he will have his wrath upon sin. And for the Christian, for those who have committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that wrath goes upon Jesus instead instead of upon us. God does not overlook the sins. He does not just, you know, say, look, we're just going to, you know, change the standard. No, he is just the standard. Uh, uh, the wrath that is meant for us is poured, up, poured out upon Jesus. God's justice is even more inexorable than, he, than any humans could be. God always does what is just. Listen to this. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, God indicts the people in anticipation, as it were, of their sins of injustice which will become a part of their life. And God says this in Leviticus 19. He says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. God says, you shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall have just balances, just weights, and a just ephah. And ephah was a measure of grain. And a just hen, which is another form of measure. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And God tells him to be just. Justice is blind. They are not to favor the rich or the poor. So as we think about justice, let those thoughts stir us. As we think about our salvation and God, who is the ultimate just judge. Someday God's wrath on sin will be manifested and none of us are ready for that. In Romans chapter 2 verse 11, we read this verse last week, Romans 2 11. The Bible says there is no partiality with God. There is no partiality with God. God is the just judge. Does anyone... Get a free pass into heaven. That's kind of a trick question. Actually, we all do. Every one of us. When we trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, it's free only because of Jesus' blood shed on the cross. It's not really free to him. He bore the cost. He took the price. He took our place. It's called the substitutionary atonement. You know, by his blood, our sins are atoned for. He took the wrath of God. He took our hell. But we do not get into heaven based off of birth, uh, where we're born. We do not get into heaven based off of the country of origin. We do not get into heaven based off of our culture. So I want to look at Romans 2, verse 12. We're only going to mainly talk about one verse today. I'm going to summarize the rest of the chapter. We're not going to read it. You can do that when you go home if you would like. I encourage you to. We're only going to focus on one verse. And the point is that everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus, regardless of your cultural background, regardless of what country you come from, regardless of how good you are as a person, regardless of any of that. Everyone needs Jesus. And here's a personal application. We don't get into heaven simply based off of being raised in the church. We could put air quotes around that. Raised in the church or scare quotes. Raised in the church. In other words, God does not have grandchildren. 
I'm going to talk more about that. You all, you know, this is a very practical application to our church. Because too often we think, well, we have that Christian heritage. We have that Christian background. My parents were Christian. I was raised in church. I was dedicated as a baby. I was baptized at whatever age. So you think that automatically is, is what gets you into heaven. You think that automatically gives you that relationship with Christ. And it doesn't. You've got to make that faith your own. So the application really is, have you personally accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Are you living with him? And also, I don't want to only focus about eternal life in Jesus, about getting into heaven. Jesus gives us a fuller life, abundant life, complete life, when we live with him. Oftentimes, though, we're not living with him. We're living for the world or for various other idols. We are covering a large section of Romans today, so I'm only going to have us read Romans chapter 2, verse 12. And I'll summarize the rest. Still, I encourage you, uh, please turn to the passage in your Bibles. Turn to Romans 2, 12. And I encourage you, follow along. I'm preaching this Romans series expository, and there'll be more expository sermons. That means verse by verse through the book of Romans. And so let's read Romans 2, verse 12. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says this. For all... Who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law. So who are sinning without the law? That would be the Gentiles. In that day and age, it would be the Gentiles. These are non-Jews. And he's saying they will perish. That means they will face judgment without the law. Based off the moral law of God, God's common grace, God's general revelation. And then, and then Paul continues, and all who have sinned under the law, this would be the Jewish people who follow the law of Moses, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And the point is, that's building on verse 11. Remember, these verses were, were added later on. So these verses were not there originally. We've got to look at the context. So that puts it with verse 11. There is no partiality with God. People of a Jewish background... People of a Greek background, people of a Roman background, people of a, sometimes Paul would put in their Scythian, which would be the barbarians of the northern, the Germanic tribes, people of whatever background, they all need salvation. They all need Jesus' death on the cross, his blood shed for them. And so as we look at verses 11 through 13, we see that God will be a just judge. There is no partiality with God. And we see this there. God will be a just judge. There is no partiality with God. We do not get into heaven simply based off of being raised in a church. I said this already, but I want to elaborate on this point for a few moments because I think it's the most convictional for, for, for Bethel and for a lot of our churches with a Christian background, a Christian heritage. At some age, we must make our faith our own. And ultimately, it's God's faith in us. It's God's working in us. But at some point, we have to make that personal to us. It has to be personal to us. I believe strongly that some never make their faith their own. Some are still committed to Jesus based off of their parents' faith or even their grandparents' faith. Or even further back in their heritage. We cannot be saved based off of tradition. That's not what saves you. That's not what gives you that life with Jesus. One... Um, cultural and Christian pundit commented that after the 1950s, and I believe they said this in the 1950s, Christianity pretty much had left the United States of America. It was only the shell that remained. 
and the shell has been crumbling ever since then. We see evidences of that through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s, right? If it's an internal faith that is really part of us, where Jesus is truly living within, within us and we are truly you know, devoted to Christ, we're making him Lord of our life, how does, how does what's going on in our society happen? Only the shell remains. There were people that commented, you know, um, in the last year or so with different restrictions on churches and some, some governors and some leaders, not in Ohio, not in Ohio, but some leaders across the United States of America really um, uh, putting um, pressure on churches to close. Pressure that even, this, even the courts ruled that they were, not they were not putting that same pressure on other businesses. They were isolating churches. They were isolating churches. And people commented, why are these governors looking at churches like that? Why are they doing that? They don't, they, don't they understand our constitution? Don't they understand our history? Then somebody pointed out, they're viewing churches as a hobby. And if it's a hobby... And we're in a crisis, it's easy to just put down the pressure and say, it's not necessary. You can close. It's just a hobby. But as I look at it, it's no wonder they view church as a hobby because a lot of the people in the pews, maybe even you, or maybe you watching online, view church as a hobby too. And maybe it's hard for you to admit that it's a hobby to you. But I ask you to seek the Lord and think, is your relationship with Christ, which the church is a big part of that, is it, you know, the center of your life? Is it the focus of your life that is so very important that everything else falls behind church, so to speak, and behind Jesus? And putting them together because the church is the bride of Christ. If you read um, Acts chapter 9, when Jesus confronted the apostle Paul on his road to Damascus, he was going to persecute more Christians, and Jesus confronted him, and Jesus said... Why are you persecuting me? Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my people? Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my church? Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? The church is the bride of Christ. And I want to ask you, is Jesus more than a hobby to you? If it's a sports event in church, what's most important? If it's a sports event or Jesus, what's most important? If it's a business event, a commitment, And I know sometimes things might be unavoidable, but if it's a business commitment and church or your relationship to Jesus, what's most important? If it's some other thing, you know, you pick your whatever. What's most important? Is church, is Jesus more than a hobby to you? And as we look at the church across the United States of America, and we look at what's happened, I think... That where we're at today, where 7% of the millennials claim to be Christians, and that's going to 4%. We look at things going on, and we say, why? I agree, I agree with the professor I had when I was a student at Cedarville. who said the parent, the kids, the children, see their parents different on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, than they are on Sunday. And now how does this relate to this passage? Because we oftentimes still think we're good because we go to church on Sunday. Or we're good because we were dedicated as a baby or we were baptized as a baby. We're good. We have, we're Christians because our parents were, our grandparents were. And you ask, and people ask me, why are my kids leaving the church? And I believe strongly, I've said this before, for whatever reason, you skip your relationship with Jesus, your kids will double that probably. If you skip occasionally because you've had a busy week or because of uh, some other type of commitment, 
because another hobby gets in the way, <laughs> the two hobbies conflict, your kids will take that even further. Think about it. I wrote this up a few years ago. Your children are raised and they see that you're committed to the church mainly once a week. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say committed to Jesus mainly once a week then. And maybe, maybe you're committed to a board meeting here and there, but your commitment to Christ is no different than a commitment to a social club. Your children see that you do not open your Bible during the week or spend time in prayer. Your children see that you don't attend Bible studies or the deeper things of the church. Your children see that you laugh at the, at the idea of attending Sunday school. Now, I put that in there because I've seen it. I've seen it in uh, two churches past. When I was serving a church in Cincinnati, a guy was early, and I said, Are you here for Sunday school? And he chuckled, No. Why would I come to Sunday school? Yet he wonders why his kids and his grandkids are not committed to the church, are not committed to Christ. Because it's a laughing matter to some. But one church member from my last church wrote this to me. She wrote it to me once. She said, It is more than simply not attending Sunday school, it is so much more. It is being indifferent. Being indifferent and having no interest in growing spiritually. No interest in getting to really know Jesus. No interest in working to become the person Christ wants you to be. No devotion to God. It is believing the lie. The lie that I go to church and I do this or that for the church. And I believe in God so I'm okay. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are called to live with Jesus. To put you know, Jesus as you know, the front of our life. The front and center so to speak. You know? The point is that Jesus has to be everything to us. He has to mean more than life to us. Our only hope is Jesus and the grace that he has so freely given us. So it's not about church in and of itself as a club or as a group. It's not about Sunday school in and of itself. These are all very good things. But it is all about Jesus owning our lives. It's all about Jesus owning our time. Do you realize that your time belongs to Jesus? It's all about Jesus owning our resources. Do you understand that your resources ultimately belong to Jesus? It's all about Jesus. Everything we are, everything we have really belongs to Jesus. And it's crazy because as I was putting this sermon together, while Mercedes was at basketball practice a few weeks ago, pre-concussion, I read this statement, which I wrote, and somebody from my last church added to a few years ago, and I thought, well, that's harsh. I'm going to take it out. And I thought, no, I think the Holy Spirit wants it in there. It's up to you to evaluate where you're at. Is Jesus the center of your life? People may see that you're committed to a history of religion, but not a relationship with Jesus. It's got to be a relationship with Jesus. And, and, and sometimes what I, my goal here is not to make anybody feel bad, but make people feel bad to the point where they repent and they get right with Jesus. And they go to their children, no matter how old they are, and their grandchildren, who may be adults too, and they say, Look, I'm sorry when you were raised, I put everything else in front of Jesus. Jesus was not the center of my life. I am sorry. I ask for your forgiveness because I failed you as a parent. And I want you to be better than that. And I want to be better than that. I want you to repent to God first and then repent to others. Because guess what? If you're raising children, they're God's children before they're your children. And if you're raising children and you're not putting Christ first and foremost being a spiritual leader in the home, you're sinning against them too. First and foremost against God. Psalm 51, I want to say verse 4, says in sin, you know, um, says, no, against you, you only have I sinned, David says when he repents. Your sin is first and foremost against God. Then you're sinning against your family too. Especially if you're a husband. You're called to be a spiritual leader in the home. And when you question, why aren't my children going to church? Why aren't my grandchildren going to church? Or you question, why aren't others? Why are, why are people in America losing their faith? This is exactly why. Because it's a hobby. It's just like a social club. 
Because we think we're saved based off of our background. Nobody's born a Christian. God does not have grandchildren. Make your faith your own no matter how old you are. Don't, don't, be, a committed, don't be committed to a history of religion. History of religion. Have a commitment to a relationship with Jesus. And, and you ask, you know, why do I get um, so hard on this point? Why do I make it such a big deal? Because I've seen it in my own family. Not Megan and my kids. Don't look at them later. Because I, I, <laughs> I've seen it in my extended family. I've seen people walk away from Christ time and time again, serving three churches as full-time, two as senior pastor, one as associate pastor. I've seen it. I've seen it when the parents and grandparents have left the church. I see it when the kids are part of my youth ministry, and I urge them, I challenge them, listen, you're going to get out of high school, and you're committed now. Make sure you stay committed to the Lord. And guess what happens? Time and time again, they do the same thing their parents and grandparents and others done. They follow the example of others, and they walk away from Christ. Or they only commit once a month because that's what they've seen. Studies show there was a book a few years ago, the Colson Center's Breakpoint did an interview with the author, The Myth of the Declining Church in America. It is a myth because the church is really only mainly declining in the liberal in the liberal denominations. I hate to use that term, but liberal means anything goes. So I don't mean liberal politically here. I mean liberal biblically. They've compromised the Bible. That, those ones are falling apart internally big time, faster than we can imagine, just falling apart. Conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing churches are doing okay and even growing a little bit. Studies show time and time again, if the man is a spiritual leader in the home and if the parents are really devoted to church seven days a week, devoted to Christ seven days a week, and not just in a hobby type way, the kids follow. God blesses that. God blesses that. And the kids follow Christ. But when you're kind of committed just here and there, and we never want to go, if you're watching the news three hours a night and you don't open your Bible, and you question why are people leaving the church? Why don't my family follow Christ? That's it. I guarantee you, that's it. God blesses it when we lead the family spiritually. God blesses that. In this case, coming back to the passage, the Jews thought they got a free ticket into heaven by simply keeping the law. The Jews thought they got a free ticket into heaven because they were circumcised. You know, that was a big deal. The eighth day, male childs had to be circumcised. You know, the Jews thought that, that they got a free ticket into heaven by being Jewish. But Paul is saying right here, nothing could be further from the truth. It's about a relationship with the Messiah, Jesus, who came through the descendants of Abraham. It's about a relationship. And this is why verse 11 says, God is not partial. Just because you're a Jew, does not mean that you're at heaven bound or for us today just because you were baptized as a baby or dedicated or raised in the church or serve on a board or team or teach Sunday school or whatever else does not mean that you're heaven bound it must be in an, in, an internal all-encompassing relationship with Jesus and that's why we get to verse 12 for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law Jew and Gentile alike need salvation by Jesus alone the Gentiles are without the law, and that is how they will be judged. The Jewish people have the law, and that is how they will be judged. Later, as we walk through the rest of this passage, which I'm just going to summarize, in verses 17 through 24, Paul turns his attention to the sinfulness of the people of God. Paul does not give the people of God, his, you know, his Jewish brothers and sisters, he does not give them an excuse. And don't get me wrong, you read the rest of Romans... Paul had a heart to reach his people group. He really wanted them to be saved. If you read Romans chapter 9, verse 1, we'll get to that very difficult chapter later on in the year. If you look at that, Paul says, I wish I could be accursed for the sake of my brethren. 
Paul wished he himself could be cursed so they would be saved. And they are being saved. There's a ministry called Chosen People Ministries. But Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there's been a partial hardening on the people of God. But eventually that will change. And maybe that's changing right now. And that's why many people are uh, being saved of Jewish ancestry. By the way, uh, people did studies. Before the Holocaust, there are mass revivals of Jewish people in that Germany, Poland type of area. Dr. Radelnik on Moody Radio, who's a Messianic Jew, has shared that time and time again. So oftentimes we think all those people in the concentration camps were Jews and were, were totally Jewish, you know? But a lot of them were Christians. Many of them were Christians. Some of them were Christians because they were trying to save the Jewish people, just like we want to save the babies that are to be aborted. Some of them were Christians because they were Jewish and they became Christians before the, before the Holocaust began. So God is at work. In verses 25 through 29, Paul focuses on the circumcision, which certainly would be the Jewish people groups as well. And many of you know that being circumcised was very important in Judaism. In that day and age, the Jewish people would think they had a free pass into heaven because of circumcision. But the apostle Paul is saying, no, circumcise your hearts, make it an internal thing. It was interesting. I read this. This is really interesting. One source shares this. Some later rabbis, rabbis, which means teachers of Judaism, even taught that Abraham, Abraham sat at the entrance to Gehenna, Gehenna is hell, and would not permit any circumcised Jew to enter there. By implication, the way you lived made no difference. In a similar way, some Christian groups have believed that the rite of baptism saves, and so baptism was delayed. In church history, this has happened. Baptism was delayed until the end of life to make sure all sins were washed away because they thought baptism in and of itself brought salvation, but it doesn't. It's just symbolic. But Paul declared that circumcision and by extension baptism without obedience is empty. Furthermore, Abraham was a man of faith who was accepted by God long before he was circumcised. If you read Genesis chapter 15, we see that Abraham was a man of faith and Abraham was accepted by God. He was, the Bible uses the word justified. That means declared righteous by faith long before he was circumcised. It's about faith, trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. The true Jewish person is one who has a spiritual circumcision of the heart. So circumcision is of no value if you do not practice the law. Verse 26 of this passage, Romans 2.26 says, If the uncircumcised man practices the law, it is as if he is circumcised. He is saying if the Gentile non-Jewish person, who they would consider pagan in history, if he practices, if he does, practices God's moral law. I think he's talking about the moral law right there. It's as if he's circumcised. It's about a circumcision of the heart. In verses 27 through 29, it's saying that circumcision and being a Jew is about the heart. It's about the heart. And this fits with the overall theme of Romans. Romans is all about salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So where are you at? Are you committed to Jesus? Is Jesus your all in all, as that song says? You are my strength when I am weak. You are the pressure that I seek. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God. I won't sing it. Worthy is your name. You would leave in a hurry. Worthy is your name. 
Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. You are my all in all. Is he your all in all? If, if, if you envision your life, and, and I should get a, would love a big whiteboard for sermons sometimes, and you put your life in the middle, okay? You put your life in the middle, and it's kind of like the sun, and all the activities of your life are orbiting around you, and you are in the middle. I think most of us, Naturally, this is wrong. So I'm saying naturally what we do, we put our life in the middle. And orbiting around, you might have children, you might have grandchildren, you might have jobs, you might have hobbies, you might have your spouse. And you would put church and Jesus orbiting around the center, which is you. And that's the wrong way to go about it. If you've committed to Jesus as Lord and Savior, Jesus goes right there in the middle. Alongside you, because Jesus and you are interlinked. You know, woven together. He is part of you. He lives within you. John chapter 15, Jesus says, you are the vine, I am the branches. We have to be connected to him. And everything orbits around Jesus. Jesus needs to be the center. I've said this before. I think I have. I forget where I say what. Wouldn't it be like cataclysmic if the earth thought, it is so arrogant of the sun to think that we all have to orbit around it. That is so arrogant. What if the earth could think? What if the earth said, I don't want to orbit around the sun anymore. I'm just going to drift off into space. We'd be dead in a matter of moments, wouldn't we? I mean, it would get really cold. Or maybe we'd get sucked into the sun more and we would overheat. And, and it's really interesting because God has earth in like the perfect spot, the Goldilocks zone. Isn't it good the earth can't think? Many times that's what we do, though. We think, how arrogant of God, how arrogant of Jesus to think we all got to orbit around Jesus. He's got to be the center. Jesus knows what's best for us. And it's best for us to orbit around him, to put him as the center. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our strength when we are weak. You are, and you must be, the treasure that we seek. You are our all in all. Jesus, we know that you are the Lamb of God. Worthy is your name. Jesus, we know that you died on the cross for our sins and rose again. Lord God, I pray that we truly do. We truly, truly do live for you. And Lord God, if anyone needs to repent of anything, may they not resist the Holy Spirit's call. May they, convicted right now, repent. Repent of not living for you. Repent of not placing you at the center of their life. And not only repent to you, but repent to those they've sinned against. If anyone here, Lord God, is never committed to as Lord and Savior, may today be the day they confess they're a sinner and need a Savior. May today be the day they believe in you as the one and only Savior. May today be the day that they trust and commit. Confess, believe, trust, and commit. May today be the day that they firmly make the decision to be with you, to live with you, in order to become like you, to learn and do all that you say, and arrange their life around you. Lord God, if anyone needs to repent for the first time, may they tell you that in a prayer. If anyone out there, you're convicted and you need to repent, you can tell God that you want to repent and turn your life over to him. You can say it in a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I confess I have sinned and missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I am trusting in you as Lord and Savior. I'm committing my life to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. Lord God, hear our prayers. 
In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer, please share it with someone today. If you have questions, I always say this and I mean it, about God or the spiritual life, even if you're a non-believer, even if you really cannot believe in Christianity for whatever, if you want to talk to somebody about it, what, what does it mean? What does Christianity mean? I would love to talk to you about it. I would love to answer any of your questions. The altars are always open. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your hearts and you want to come forward and, and kneel at the altar, come forward and pray. Um, you can bring somebody up with you or come up by yourself, whatever. Just come forward and pray.